Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we talk to the big names from the world of advertising, marketing, and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity, and the possible futures for our industry. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by K.O. Fontanelli, who holds the position of New Ventures Director for Kraft Heinz, which is the fifth largest food and beverage company in the world, and home to a global portfolio of household brands, plenty more than 57 now, I think, including eight which are worth more than $1 billion apiece. Keo, with such an established and impressive portfolio of products, Heinz could be forgiven for sitting back somewhat and enjoying the fruits of its labours. But there's clearly now, after I suppose, um, you know, some periods of uncertainty a few years back, there's clearly now a new and real drive to continue to innovate and expand. The most recent thing, I think, is a range of pasta sauces launched earlier this year. Considering the success you've had with ketchup, it was only a matter of time before you looked at other ways, I suppose, to use the humble tomato. Uh, tell me a bit more about your current uh, approach to innovation. That's true. Um, first, a uh, pleasure to be here with you. Uh, before I go on our experience, uh, on our adventure on pasta sauces, maybe I tell you a bit what I do here. Of course. So we recently created a new division that we call New Ventures to try to accelerate uh, and to be more competitive on innovation, right? And I think uh, the basis of it is to, to try to be more agile. Sometimes uh, in big companies, you take a long time to plan, to discuss, to approve an investment, you know. So this is a bit of, um, let's say, our new approach to innovation. And the first exercise we did was, okay, what's closest to us in terms of innovation? The first big launch was uh, was the pasta sauces, right? The Heinz pasta sauces that we, we just launched in the market. 150 years growing the best tomatoes, doing tomatoes for ketchup, and you haven't launched a pasta sauce, right? So our approach for innovation is first to go what's close to us, to see what we have higher chances to win, and then to go into adjacent of, of our brands, right? That's, our, let's say, our first our first approach. So it's very interesting. You must see enormous disruption in the food industry in that for a start, I suppose, although you aren't, you know, I suppose, number five in the world, I guess Nestle is number one. You probably have PepsiCo in the top five. Actually, a large amount of the innovation is taking place with much, much smaller players. 
one of the uh, characteristics I notice in food is people who've made a lot of money in banking or something intangible absolutely love to go into the food or drink category with their wealth. And I've always had this vague suspicion that if you've made a lot of money in, in something where, you know, you've made money of numbers off a screen, the one thing you're missing in your life is a kind of tangible physical product. And so buying a vineyard or indeed starting a food business seems to be very, very common. And I suppose new retail structures can make it uh, for example, direct-to-consumer can just make it easier to innovate, at least at a scale where you survive fairly easily to begin with. So in a sense, you have two lots of competitors. You have the other members of the top five or the top ten, which are large global conglomerates. And you also have, I suppose, the long tail of competition. Where do you see the remaining big advantages to scale, particularly when, possibly post-pandemic as well, people's general um, loyalties sometimes seem to be fragmenting a bit. Where are still the big gains to, to scale and distribution in being a top five player? Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, this is uh, probably what makes us uh, different from a startup, right? I think um, with this approach that we have to be more agile, to be more lean, to reduce the lead time of innovation, right? Uh, uh, this, we, we get closer to a startup, but what makes us different is the scale that we have, right? Although we see a proliferation of uh, let's say, direct consumer brands, brands that go very niche and talk to specific consumers. This is very easy for you to set up and to put in place. I think uh, the relationships and um, the expertise for scale, it's something that uh, I believe that is a bit harder for startups. So what do I say is that um, for you even to get a phone call with, uh, with uh, one of the big retailers in the UK, right? If you're a startup, it's really hard for you to get that unless you have a really outstanding product that stands out uh, uh, and makes, uh, let's say, those buyers to pick up your call. So I think in that sense, it helps, you know, because we already have um, a relationship. Let's say our retail market is quite uh, consolidated, right? So I would say that we have a um, quicker connection uh, that helps us with scale. But of course, this helps with distribution, right? Uh, we need to bring things that make sense and that sustain in the shelf. That's what probably the startups are doing really well. But on top of this is also to do really differentiated, super new, innovative product in a small scale. It's not that complicated, right? Uh, but when, it, when you need to put it in a, let's say, in a machine uh, to deliver to many different countries, that's uh, when uh, the compromises come. And I think uh, if you add our agility, you know, and our, let's say, resilience to keep bringing something new and to to live a spirit of a startup and a differentiation. With the scale that we have, I think I would say that uh, this is our recipe to win in innovation. No, I can see that because actually maintaining consistency across borders, for example, I think that's what you might call the second hurdle. The first hurdle people tend to encounter is getting listings in the first place. But once you have those listings, I suppose, you know, it's fairly easy at that point to survive, provided people continue to buy your product, which is actually quite a big if, it's worth noting. But actually obtaining that sort of consistency, because people generally suddenly encounter a whole new range of problems when they go beyond that slightly boutique scale. Does your approach to innovation also include... Um, I've actually um, spoken quite a bit to various players in this market. Innovation in terms of delivery as well. Are you considering, for example, D2C propositions or, for example, partnerships with the growing kind of food kit industry? I'm intrigued, I think, in this area because it does occur to me, and obviously this varies by country, 
But in the UK, you had this long, very enduring tradition of the big weekly shop. And generally, that meant people went to one of two or three retailers, generally mid-market retailers for the most part. And now what we see is undoubtedly people are shopping more frequently, often at smaller outlets. And they're kind of covering the waterfront, you know, in that they'll go to a Lidl or an Aldi and a local shop and perhaps one of the big multiples. But there does seem to be a fragmentation of consumer behaviour. And I suppose things like food kits, which now have reached, you know, significant scale, they're further contributing to that sort of fragmentation of where people shop. So in some ways, I suppose you have an advantage to your scale, which is your distribution doesn't just encompass those fairly standard big retailers. You can also much more quickly reach out to the other places where people are buying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you touched on two interesting points, right? I think the first one is um, how we scale things across, let's say, the borders of, of a country, right? Uh, and it's very easy in an organization like ours, people to highlight the differences, right? Okay, we launched this pasta sauces in the UK, and they want to bring it to France, and people start to highlight, no, this doesn't work for this market because of this, that doesn't work for that market because of this. I think it's important to, to really understand the consumer dot of that specific market. But for a company like us, to understand which are the trends that could be more universal and we could tap uh, into those trends in order to really build something that's uh, scalable. That's probably the secret or, or the balance, right? Uh, to focus on what can work in different markets, right? But another thing, another way to do that, which is, uh, I think it's a much more test and learn approach and a much more like learn with the consumers is via direct consumer, right? Uh, we have uh, recently done a few incursions into this space, uh, more in an inorganic way via um, uh, spices mixes, right? So we acquired um, a company in Germany that's doing really well. And I think the secret is that before they started to monetize with that, they built a community, right? Uh, they start to collect data from consumers. And this is what everyone says in the D2C, right? That uh, probably the, the main asset is the, the, the close relationship and direct relationship you have with your consumers that you can iterate and, and be fast on that. The scalability of that model, I think, might have different uh, directions, right? It could be a model that uh, you scale that operation to different countries, or that could be also a direction for you to test and learn and then scale into big retailers. But also in that space of direct consumer, right, for you to in win in that space, what you understood is that it needs to have something else for people to come back to that channel. If you offer the same thing that people can buy in, the, in their local supermarkets, right, really hard for them to go there and repeat that purchase for that specific brand or that small part of their, of their basket, right? Um, I think this is something also that um, I think everyone has already understood that you need to bring something new in order for you to succeed into that uh, D2C space. But this is a new area for us. We've just uh, started in a few different ways, organically and inorganically, but it's definitely an area of attention for the future, for sure. Uh, the other quite interesting question, I suppose, in this area, and, and it becomes, I suppose, increasingly pertinent now we have really, I suppose, certainly across Europe, actually across the Western world, a cost of living crisis. Quite a lot of the growth in revenue in the food industry tended to come through premiumization. I mean, both Kraft and Heinz have traditionally been highly democratic brands, haven't they? Obviously, they, you know, each of them practices various line extensions, but we tend to see them as those rather interesting brands which defy demography. Um, the, you know, there's the very, very famous work, of course, by um, Malcolm Gladwell on Heinz Ketchup. And why is it that nobody can produce a ketchup that people prefer? And um, 
uh, you know, there are massively expensive ketchups and there are premium ketchups. Uh, the same goes for Heinz baked beans. You've, you've created this slightly important magic, I think, where you actually defy that usual market segmentation and just become the acceptable norm right across the board. I mean, are you looking at premiumization and equally budgetization to sort of capture both ends of the market in, in certain categories? I mean, I, it's been very interesting if you look at brands like P&G, for example, a very large part of their growth over the last few years has been driven by spotting the fact that you know, there's large scope in the market for you know higher margin goods sold at slightly smaller volume. Is that the same for you, or do you plan to stick fairly assiduously to what is a, a rather actually Byron Sharp would I imagine say a very very valuable, uh, completely classless position? Yeah, I mean we are we are looking after growth, right, um, for our brand and for our business, uh, and there are many different uh, growth avenues. Obviously, one is uh, is premiumization. Uh, but the one that we're looking more closely now is uh, we have this brand that's, um, I mean, it's an entity, right, uh, in this country. It's uh, always top two, uh, between top three uh, most loved brands, food brands in, in the country. And I think over the, the years, we have stayed quite close into very specific categories. Baked beans, tomato soup and tomato ketchup, uh, moving to mayonnaise. Um, so we, we, we saw a big opportunity to find a growth avenue towards expanding to credible adjacencies, right? Uh, so I, I think right now that has been defining our growth. I mean, uh, with the recent launch of pasta sauce, right, as I said, is a space that uh, we are tomato experts. Um, something that I learned is we export the seeds, right, uh, worldwide. So it almost like uh, if you go into Italy, there's a high chances that that tomato they're eating is a, is a Heinz, Heinz tomato, right? So we thought, okay, we have that brand that is, is a food brand, right? Heinz, if you go to the US, is more like a, a ketchup brand. But I think here in the UK and Australia, we are, we are really a food brand with credentials that consumers, well, it's obvious, right? When you show pasta sauce. So I thought that Heinz was already playing that space. So I would say that our strategy now is to find the areas that first, there is something to solve. There is a, a new need or as people say, like a, a pain point or we get, we find a gap in the market and then we see that, can we own that gap? We are credible enough to go into that gap and, and go there, right? So um, I would say that uh, uh, this is a, a strong part of our strategy to move into adjacencies. Uh, trying to to leverage on on the credibility and the expertise that of of the Heinz has uh, uh, here, right? Are you also looking, by the way, at you know, at as I said, are you questioning modes of delivery? I mean, you could argue that for you know, if if you can achieve ubiquitous distribution uh, through physical means, and let's face it, I mean, you have that wonderful position in several of your brands, which is that retailers are effectively obliged to stock them. That, you know that's that's a very rare position to have, but uh, you know if you didn't stock ketchup and in the UK and in Australia if you didn't stock the beans, people would blame the retailer effectively. And you know that that would be a mark of retailer incompetence not to have it on the shelf. But at the same time, do, you know, are, do you explore other forms of D to C relationship, or do you consider that actually, uh, you know, ultimately actually the scale and efficiency of conventional distribution through retailers, uh, particularly for products of this kind, will always actually predominate. Yeah, we, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that uh, I think this was accelerated. I mean, we, we always, I mean, everyone is looking at uh, to see, right, and how we can build this direct relationship with consumers to get, um, let's say, feedback direct from them. 
but um, with COVID, uh, I don't know if, if you know, but we accelerated um, our D2C strategy. We launched a Heinz to Home website. So I think we were one of the first uh, brands to help within that uh, supply constraint um, moment to deliver our Heinz products direct, directly to people home. Of course, uh, people that go there are the Heinz lovers, people that are very loyal to the brand. We have all the initiatives, even with, within new ventures um, that we're exploring into the D2C space uh, to offer, let's say, more niche products, right? Because uh, it's for you to get on a shelf of a big retailer, right? You need, you need to be a mainstream product. So in that case, it's not interesting for a big retailer to launch, uh, let's say, something that uh, a trend that's still being established. So what we do, we wait in, uh, until the, the trend is, is there to be on the, let's say, on the mainstream shelves, or we find different ways to, to build and to educate and to learn those new trends, right? So the way we see D2C is in that way. We're not so sure that that trend will stay or we want to explore something new. And then we, we, we identify the community that would make sense, you know, for that uh, specific product. We, we have one in, in place now, uh, um, a small brand that we're launching within a specific community to test and, and learn and to, yeah, to learn more about the community and the, and the consumers uh, to see if there's a real uh, opportunity for scale for, for mass launch within retailers, right? So I would say this is our approach uh, to D2CA at, at the moment. It's interesting. Your background is actually in marketing communications before you moved into innovation. I think it's highly commendable and very interesting because I've always considered that marketing and innovation, I think, are fundamentally the same thing in the sense that there, you know, I always make this point that there are two ways you can actually create new value in a marketplace. You can either find out what people want and find a brilliant way to deliver it, or you can work out what you can make and find a way to make people want it. And it's always struck me that actually marketing and innovation should be effectively in the same department, because at some point, it doesn't matter whether you make money traveling in one direction along that journey or both. And indeed, most real successes, I think, are a mixture of the two, aren't they? You know, they're a mixture of spotting an unmet market need with actually normalizing that product. And so marketing and innovation, to separate them always strikes me as fundamentally you know, a kind of dangerous separation because they're actually inextricable in many ways. So what led Heinz to make that decision particularly? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't uh, agree more with you on that, right? Um, I think the, our approach, uh, especially in the, the small division, right, or this kind of lean teams, we have a few, let's say, cells that are fully dedicated to, to specific consumer areas that you want to tap into, right? In that area, there's no distinction. It's difficult to recruit. I'll tell you that uh, this has been one of our main challenges, right, to, to find people, talents that... Uh, they don't see that division, right? They understand the, the consumer needs and then it's either how I, I position my brand in that space or how I position the, the product benefit, right? So what made us uh, move into that decision is exactly that, right? Uh, if you find that separation, I think you lose, you, are, you have some blind spots on top, of course, of, uh, let's say, the normal tensions around uh, decision-making, right? So, so I, I also don't see that, that separation. You know, your other comment on um, the two directions, right, of uh, finding an untapped uh, consumer need and or creating something and making people want it. Our experience so far is that um, it's always a much easier job if you're really honest about does it exist a gap, right? Do we have a gap? There is a need for that product to exist. And of course, later you can tap on, okay, why my brand has to solve that? And then what, what do I have that uh, allows Heinz to go into that space? But uh, in our experience, it's down the hill when you identify the opportunity and it's quite painful 
when you try to force fit something that uh, all the brands are doing and you're doing just because you're Heinz, right? It could, it could work, you're right. It could work uh, in that way as well. But I, I found it uh, more efficient when, when you def- identify the gap. And of course, the power of your brand will just accelerate that. Because what I find interesting is that in a sense in innovation, one of the things I notice is that it doesn't matter. I've done quite a lot of work in marketing new technology. And one of the things I've noticed is that in many ways, it doesn't matter how good the technology becomes. At some level, it becomes a marketing problem. Because if you look at electric cars now, you know, okay, we've seen spectacular improvement in terms of range and performance and everything else. But still, there's a fundamental psychological hurdle when you ask people to stop doing one thing and start doing another. Because if you like, you know, the human brain, two of the deep evolutionary instincts are social copying, do what everybody else does, and habit, do what I've done before. And there are very good evolutionary reasons for that, which is doing what you've done before didn't kill you in the past, so it's not going to kill you in the future. And doing what everybody else does is a pretty safe heuristic. You know, if everybody else is eating the purple berries, they're probably safe to eat. And so, you know, we draw huge inferences. We have a natural inclination towards habit or familiarity. I mean, that doesn't mean we always buy the same product, but we buy within a repertoire. And we also tend to default. I think this is why you see that Dirichlet distribution uh, where, you know, the brand leader in any category tends to enjoy a disproportionate level of of penetration and frequency uh, in terms of uh, purchase. And so breaking into established habits and established norms is difficult, even when you have product superiority. And the one thing I've always wondered about, do you find customer loyalty card data from retailers useful here? Because the question I always ask with innovation is that the speed of growth doesn't actually tell you how good a product you've got, because you're working against habit and you're working against social convention. Okay. What does really matter as a piece of data is how many people who buy this thing buy it again. So one great thing that does strike me about, you know, something like, you know, loyalty card data is for the first time, you can tell whether you have a product which is only growing slowly in market penetration, but is achieving huge loyalty among those people it has penetrated, or whether your apparent growth just emerges from more and more people trying it for the first time and never going back. And that sort of longitudinal data strikes me. I'll give you an example. I I always joke about this, but I think there are technologies, and it's true of the mobile phone, okay? It's true of multi-channel television at extreme levels, where it took a long time for those products to become accepted. In the UK, there were people who went, well, four channels is quite enough for me. Why on earth would I want some crazy number of channels, like 15 or 20, okay? And with mobile phones, I'm old enough to remember people who thought, why would I want to make a phone call on the street? But what was significant about those technologies is that nobody who got a mobile phone ever then went back to not having one. And nobody who had multi-channel television ever then said, well, I think I was happier with just four. And so I think there is this wonderful, I think, opportunity and innovation now to look at the data in a much more sophisticated, individualized way. And, you know, I, I think there are technologies which will take 50 years to pay. My joke one is the Japanese toilet, okay? I've got one myself. I always talk about this. But I said, the interesting thing about the Japanese toilet is no one replaces their toilet very frequently. Most people who replace their toilet don't think of a Japanese toilet. 
But over time, it will reach some sort of tipping point because nobody who's had a Japanese toilet ever goes back to having a basic toilet. Okay, And so I think one real opportunity in innovation is if you spot really, really high levels of repeat purchase, it's probably pretty safe to say you're onto something and it's worth promoting it. Obviously, you know, uh, that was one area where once you sold through retailers, historically, you didn't get that data. And now you can. How helpful are the retailers in sharing that information? Or are they still kind of secretive and uh, reluctant to tell you what's going on? No, I think this, this data is, uh, is uh, available. It costs money, but it's available. Uh, but what I found fascinating, what you said is, of course, you're discussing, uh, let's say, maturity of adoption, right? And I think that could be adoption of a technology, yes. but it could be also an adoption of a consumer trend. Today, we have a slightly different approach, right? I think we take a bit more risk on there is a consumer trend. i give an example, right? Uh, we're doing a sauce specific for vegetables, for grilled vegetables, right? What is the proportion of consumers that would put, uh, let's say, sauces within those grilled vegetables? Probably is less than uh, people that put in a, in a hamburger, right? So this is a consumer trend that will pick up, you know, but probably... Everyone will try a product because it's Heinz, but how is the repeat rate of it, right? And this depends a lot, if you want to complicate that equation, of the channels that uh, you sell. So you're going to have a much higher repeat rate if you go very focused on a consumer that the adoption rate is already established. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There is this huge thing, I think, which tends to bedevil big brands. And I don't think they always fully realize the extent to which a really big brand can normalize a new behavior. Uh, there tends to be this idea that big brands are fairly conventional and serve existing needs, and it's the new little brands that do the innovation and carve out new market niches. And I think there's there's a problem there with marketers, which is 
marketers are very odd in, in many ways as people because they're very high on the kind of openness and they're always disproportionately eager to try new things and they're disproportionately eager to talk about the new and different things they're doing. And one of the things I've always mentioned, you know, I've always said this to Ford, look, actually your brand is a fantastic platform for innovation because probably 50% of the market will adopt an innovation if it comes with a Ford badge, which they wouldn't touch if it came with an Alfa Romeo badge. And so you have that extraordinary power to say, you know, actually, this isn't a weird thing. You know, so the electrification of Ford, I think they did a very, very clever thing in electrifying existing brands like Mustang, F-150, Transit, rather than creating new brands there. Because I think that said to a whole bunch of people, if you think about it, the traditional F-150 buyer, fairly conservative, wouldn't be naturally predisposed to an electric vehicle. But their loyalty to the F-150 effectively overcomes that hurdle. And I think that power you have to effectively say to the mass market, as opposed to early adopters, this is now a thing, okay? You know, Heinz wouldn't be doing this if it were not a thing. I know a thing is not the great, greatest technical marketing terminology, but... This is, this is uh, then linking to your question, right? I think this is true. Uh, we, we recently launched a Heinz Beans Burger, right? So tapping to the like, plant-based alternatives, right? And we see that uh, more than half of the people that are buying our, our Beans Burgers. They have never bought into the category before. So it's, it's exactly what you said, right? Uh, look, this is not, uh, not anymore for a few people, you know, it's not anymore for, uh, let's say, the people here close to the London Bridge at Bermondsey, but it's for everyone in the country, right? Everyone can go into that space, right? I think it's two things, right? Linking also to your question before on the technology, right? It's about availability, right? Uh, and, uh, and the maturity of that trend, right? So our approach to technology and then moving to that space, it's slightly different, right? We have a much longer and a strategic, let's say, point of view on technology. We have a strong R&D center in, in the Netherlands that look at uh, probably things that are not yet marketable, but they, they might be in the future. Future, right uh, solutions that uh, probably the demand is not yet defined but it could unlock uh, or, or make possible um, some 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 strong innovations in the future and this is quite common in, uh, in the industry right yesterday as you said before right on the putting the commercialization aspects into innovation right yesterday we were, we were talking to a company in San Francisco that's doing edible packaging which is an amazing thing it's an amazing thing but how you transport that you know because it's it's if it dissolves and it's edible is because you cannot have a contact uh, with, with something else, right? But then you have to package it, and therefore you have to add an additional packaging, right? So I think technology, and then we, we always keep the eyes on like uh, what, what technology is allowing us to do because we want to be in, in close contact to that. And then to put that view on, okay, how, can I commercialize that now? You know, to have a, a more practical view on it, even if it's a small scale, right? So it's a bit of, a, of our approach. Try to identify today the consumer uh, needs or the gaps of the opportunities that we can serve the consumers Today, but at the same time that we keep an eye on, on uh, what is, is not ready for market, but uh, you want to be accelerating via, let's say, uh, a more commercial, pragmatic point of view. Very interestingly, I suppose I should comment on that question of sort of meat-free dining and the general approach, which is either, you know, vegetarianism, flexitarianism, or the one I think it's only fair to say none of us really predicted, which is veganism going mainstream. I, I, you know, I had seen vegetarianism going mainstream. You know, I kind of had an instinct that was going to happen. But I mean, you know, given that, you know, in my sort of student years, most of my vegetarian friends regarded vegans as nutters. Okay. Um, that was something I, you know, I don't think any of us actually saw. 
And of course, in a sense, one of the things I noticed is that veganism will probably drive vegetarianism simply because something I never predicted, a restaurant possibly now needs to offer a vegan option and a vegetarian option. So even if you're simply choosing at random, the likelihood that you'll have a meat-free meal. In many countries, France is going to take a bit longer, I suspect. Uh, you know, there are certain countries where, you know, meat is more embedded in the cuisine than in others. I suppose Italy is an interesting case, actually, because, you you know, you've always had this tradition of uh, actually, I, 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 I'll, I'm going to say, it, I, I think Italian food is more scalable than French food, isn't it? You, you know, you've got a fantastic snack repertoire of bruschetta and so forth, and it goes all the way up. French food is a bit more kind of bifurcated. But it does interest me, you, you would see that the general sort of uh, meat-free, either as a kind of complete lifestyle or as a regular behaviour, you see that enduring, probably, do you? Yes, we do. We do see that. And I think we have, um, I would say, two approaches to that, right? One is like us being a brand that uh, wants to, like, to have an offer to everyone, right? Uh, one thing is that uh, we try to offer our classics in a vegan option, right? So a vegan mayonnaise, yes, um, vegan cream of tomato. But our portfolio is mostly vegan, to be really honest. 83% yes, I was going to say. Well, it's natural vegan. So before vegan was a thing... I think 83% of the of the highest portfolio was already vegan. We just like didn't talk about it. And we try not to over talk about it, right? I mean, the way we, we mentioned I, I mean, I've always had a theory that it would have been much more difficult for people to be vegan if Heinz beans hadn't existed, in fact. Yes. <laughs> yeah, people are naturally. So we're naturally, uh, uh, we, we have a naturally strong uh, vegan op option. And uh, what is not vegan, we are making it available, right? With the principle of being available to all. And there is another another direction, which is um, because you have this uh, strong heritage and connection with beans and beans, of course, I mean, especially with, with diets that lack uh, protein and fiber, you know, it's a natural source of uh, protein fiber. We, 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 we find a way to, okay, so for those people that want to eat more plants, you know, we can have also, let's say, an expanded offer uh, specific to people that are willing to reduce, let's say, the meat intake. And with this, uh, you know, we, we are producing a seri series of innovations leveraged on, let's say, the power of, uh, of beings as an alternative to meat. So I think we have those two approach to it. But I think it came quite naturally, right, uh, to us. And, and I think it makes sense, right? It's not something you're trying to force, I would say. Actually, I think um, one of the things that, you know, campaigners in this area do need to do is you tend to have that case where the campaigners in the early days of any behavior are deeply inimical to large global brands. But actually, it is those large global brands, whether it's you or McDonald's, that will effectively take... Because one of the things they tend to do is they tend to judge the behavior by purity. In other words, how purely vegan they are themselves, and they slightly miss that what really matters in terms of animal welfare is the scale of the behavior. Absolutely. And there's, a, there's a famous statistic, I think, which is that if, if the United States reduced its meat consumption to the level of the United Kingdom, it would make more difference to animal welfare than if the whole of the UK went completely vegetarian. And so you know, even, even if people aren't absolutely pure, the fact that people, even unintentionally, are eating meat-free or vegan food. You know, I'm not vegetarian. One of my daughters is. I'm perfectly happy ordering the McPlant burger, for example, now. I think there's a possible conflict, which is that in the early days, deep down and unconsciously, campaigners like sort of vegetarian or vegan campaigners rather liked how different it made them. And they possibly, without realising it, 
almost have a slight discomfort when their behaviour becomes mainstream because it no longer marks them out as being quite as interesting. It's no longer quite as talkable as it was before. But this huge role I think that global brands play, and I said this normalisation question, this is a thing. Absolutely. We almost have to say, Rory, is like, sorry, <laughs> sorry, uh, those uh, people that thought this was only for a few, <laughs> but uh, we are also vegan. Uh, but I think the beauty of, uh, of uh, back to the beginning of our conversation, right, the beauty of, um, and the beauty and the difference, like, of startups is exactly, and what uh, I think makes me waking up, you know, is that every small change that we make in a brand like Heinz has a huge impact. Being like, if we, like we did recently, it looks like a small thing, but it's quite for innovation. It's easier to do things like that. But when you have a core business that's big, so we recently uh, removed the plastic to, to, to cardboards for baked beans, right? Uh, it seems like an easy thing, but uh, it's a quite complex supply supply change and adaptation, right? But the impact of that is is huge, right? Uh, we, we sell millions of, of, of baked beans. So I think innovating a company with the power of, of Heinz, we have um, we have the benefit of scaling up trends that we believe being in sustainability, being uh, helping people to eat better. Uh, I think it can really be, let's say, a force for good, right? I mean, if you're doing the right things and if you're putting into our teams and in our, into our initiatives um, the right decisions, you know, I think that uh, definitely the impact of a big brand uh, makes it um, accelerating trends of different ways. I mean, in terms of packaging, I'm a huge enthusiast, undoubtedly, for you know greater environmental sustainability and packaging. But obviously, as a marketer, it also terrifies me because one of the things I am conscious of is that the value of something, and actually the perception of something, the taste of something, isn't only determined by the contents of the packaging, the actual packaging itself. This is why famously blind taste tests don't work because the packaging itself contributes to our expectation and therefore to our experience. And so you have moved away from glass, is that right, in some, in some fields? Or are you returning to it? For innovation, right? Um, I think all the products we launched, we launched this year were majorly um, in glass, uh, pasta sauces, a range of sauces. So in innovation, we, we try to, everything that we launched new as a mandate, right, needs to be 100% recyclable natural ingredients. So that's uh, everything new that launches is, has, in the, has that, that principle, I would say. And then you obviously are exploring the edible packaging, which is an interesting case because in order to be hygienic, you need to have some form of preparation before it's edible because you don't know what it's come into contact with. But it's nonetheless possible. So I suppose you might call it kind of cookable or boilable packaging, which then becomes edible after you've actually um, heated it. Exactly. And that, that's obviously fascinating because it's a case of, you know, if you like, zero waste, zero garbage. Are you enthused by the possibilities of sort of paper-based packaging as well? Yeah, I mean, we recently uh, launched a collaboration with Popex, right? Uh, we, are, we are testing our R&D center. It's testing, it's in pilot phase now, the test of, of a bot of ketchup made of uh, paper fibers, right? But I think it's, this is one of our initiatives, one, one of the many initiatives uh, in, into packaging, right? Because the reality is we want to offer to consumer choice, right? People to, I mean, so people want uh, plastic because they find it convenient to squeeze. And then we, we want to offer to consumers what they want, right? I think our challenge is how we do that in the most sustainable way. Okay, we have a glass. Okay, glass is recyclable. 
cool. Uh, how we can make it reusable? Okay, is it possible? Is it scalable? We have a partnership with Loop. It's still small, right? But that could be a behavior that people would adopt, right? Because if it's super clean, recyclable, people do not adopt, as you said initially, right? Uh, I think the benefit is limited, but we're not uh, hiding away of, uh, of testing and being ahead of that and uh, offer at least the options to consume in many different fronts, right? Uh, either being recyclable plastic or, of course, now a bit more disruptive on paper, paper-based bottle. I think what we do is to try to offer the choices, but do them in the most sustainable way. And actually, it's worth noting, isn't it, that there's a trade-off sometimes between packaging waste and food waste or uh, you know, less sustainable packaging sometimes is that's very, very visible and salient. Whereas the food waste issue, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a very big fan of uh, any of those entities where you, for example, sell Heinz beans in those four, pat, four pots, which particularly for single person households is absolutely brilliant because essentially you can have one portion of beans and effectively the shelf life is enormously greater. And I think I think that's an important question because food waste often gets it, 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 if you look at the statistics for food waste in countries like the uk it's extraordinary what a high percentage of food bought effectively is disposed of uneaten and uh, i think people aren't quite alert enough to this they're very conscious of the packaging problem but actually if packaging contributes to shelf life and reduces food waste you've got to factor that into the equation if you're being honest you know if you're creating sustainable packaging at the price of having food thrown away through lack of confidence for example ultimately you're not doing anybody any favors because the decomposition of food of course is contributing to carbon emissions methane absolutely yeah and this is probably the challenge of uh, let's say different packagings right the process that food has to go through right affects the the shelf life of it but i think that's a, is a constant constant challenge i would say on on mention on food waste uh, because the, the the shelf space is limited right and then we see attention towards reducing complexity of products uh, available to people right in that sense it makes almost like everyone to have to fit on a, on a single, let's say, type of packaging with a, with, a, with a content, right? I mean, because if you look at our baked beans, right, we have since 200 grams, 300, 400 grams, uh, we have a, a larger pack. So in terms of um, availability, we have many, many different sizes, you know, for children, for a couple, for that works for, for family, right? That one, that, that helps, uh, let's say, for you to buy and to open the package exactly for what you need. But on the other hand, you have also the retailer side, constantly pushing for less excuse on the shelf and rationalizing the space because it's, of course, it's expensive, right? So I think that's a constant balance that um, I think packaging and shelf life and finding creative ways to keep shelf life without having to add anything, any nasties to it, which is also everyone wants to, to know exactly what they eat in their food and to, to have a list of ingredients that's also pose, impose a challenge in, in the industry as well. Yeah, that's, that's a shame the retailers doing that in many senses, because First of all, actually, I mean, size and quantity is actually a major driver of consumer behavior, isn't it? You know, that people hate paying for more than they need. And actually, in many cases, people will actually pay a premium for the right size of something. And um, I think, yeah, the retailer drive to have, you know, a greater range of brands, but a smaller range of volumes 
is probably not helping with the food waste question. I mean, there are other interesting ones. If you've gone into mayonnaise, one of the interesting things is that people know that I think unopened mayonnaise has quite a long shelf life, but they have no idea what the shelf life is once they've opened it, which is an interesting, you know, and of course, they may have no memory of when they opened it. So even if they know that. So you have this dual problem, don't you, with those kind of uh, sources, particularly, uh, you know, from squeezable bottles, even more so, which is many people probably throw them away too early, simply through, you know, when in doubt, chuck it out. Yeah, Rory, but I think, I mean, also linking to a question that you did before, right? I think uh, these constraints, uh, they also ask creativity from us, right? Of course, the retailers, yeah. they, they rationalize the range because it costs a lot, right? The real estate is expensive. And then if, for, for product to be in the shelf, it needs to rotate, right? So back to the, I think this is a great opportunity back to direct consumer, right? Uh, to offer, let's say, a broader range. I think an online uh, player, you know, has uh, an opportunity, possibility to offer a broader range for people that have more specific needs, right? So I think that could be also a way to tackle, let's say, a more customization option for the group of people that are not uh, properly served by the mainstream options. Now, I can't go without asking a few of the little questions you've had about um, the little experiments you've had. You rebranded uh, as Tomato Edge up as an homage to the singer Ed Sheeran. You've also had HM Sauce for the Jubilee and Salad Queen, as opposed to Heinz Salad Cream, uh, in honour of the Platinum Jubilee celebration. Do you see a significant uplift in sales when you create these? Or is it simply a you know a brand awareness exercise? It's definitely very good for the brand. I mean, uh, we, we're still counting the numbers for the Salad Cream and the HP recent uh, rebrandings. Um, yesterday, last time that I saw was 300 million impressions. So it's definitely, especially for to bring that uh, those products back to people's minds, it's definitely the main exercise, right? Or the main objective of this exercise. But to your question, yes, we see an uplift in sales. I mean, a single digit uplift. But to be really candid, when you do those kind of activations, right, you have the support of the retailers, you know, you talk more about it, uh, you have uh, more displaying stores. Uh, so it's very hard if you think about sales today to say, oh, this was led by that specific brand activation, so to be really candid with you. But uh, what is very clear is the, the, the long-term impact and the benefit for the brand from time to time, especially uh, products like salad cream, you know, to be reminding people of the usage and then uh, bringing that uh, to the top of people's mind. I think that's, that's a brilliant brilliant exercise of our, of our market marketing team. I think there's a kind of brilliant signal in it too, which is it's something that only the brand leader can credibly do in a funny kind of way. You know, I mean, walkers were obviously pioneers of this, you know, having fun with flavors, etc. And I mean, walkers partly did, partly did it, I think, to get more shelf space, to be honest. I mean, it's very interesting if you look at crisp purchasing habits. I, I can't remember the exact statistics, but basically about 80% of people buy ready salted, salt and vinegar, cheese and onion. And then there's a kind of prawn cocktail beef minority. And actually, the slightly weirder flavors don't actually sell that much. But what they do do is they get shelf space. But I think there's also a kind of reassertion of brand leadership in that it's something the brand leader can have the confidence to do, which you wouldn't do if you're a number three or a five or a seven. And I suppose in this case, I think it, it rather brilliantly reasserts your national treasure characteristics as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's definitely easier for a brand because a brand like Heinz, because they're already part of the culture, right? So whatever Heinz will say, of course, I mean, uh, you might say completely relevant things and people will never talk about it. But if you're right, uh, 
on uh, to find the right conversation of that moment, right? I mean, it's likely that people talk about it, right? We just launched our Heinz beans hummus, right? Uh, which is made of beans, not chickpeas. And then uh, we didn't do much, right? We just uh, sent a press release and then everyone talks about it, right? So people watch what, uh, for the good and for the bad, people watch what uh, what a brand like Heinz does. So it's, it's, it's a big responsibility, uh, but also it's a big opportunity for us to to engage with uh, with people, right? With consumers. I've yet to try that. So I've got to ask, what's it actually like, the bean-based hummus? So I, I will be heading out this afternoon to go and try it out. Please do it. And then you can send me, we, are, we, we are just launched it, right? So we, one thing that we do is really observe consumer feedback and then we improve as you listen to it. So I'm really keen to see your opinion of it. I think it's uh, initial response has been really good. So keen to see your view on it. And without giving away any trade secrets, obviously, where do you see real potential still remaining for growth in the food and beverage category? I mean, without revealing it, um, I think uh, flavor exploration and uh, the world of plant-based is definitely, we see that, uh, you know, in one side, people trying to eat better, but in the other side, people trying to explore and to still have some fun and some, uh, let's say, indulgent in terms of flavors aspects uh, in their lives, right? Uh, this is, I think, a brilliant answer, because one of the things I noticed is that vegetarianism was always positioned as a compromise, not a choice. You know, and I think there's there's this fundamental mistake that it was always actually language like beyond meat suggests or implies this is actually meatier than meat itself. It's rather like, you know, electric cars started off as having appalling performance compared to uh, petrol cars. And actually, now the kind of category has a mojo where it can actually suggest this is actually tastier and texturally more interesting that this isn't a compromise anymore. This is actually a perfectly valid option. I think all the rules change. It's very interesting, by the way, because looking at the history of this, there was a lot of experimentation in that area hundreds of years ago, necessitated by religious restrictions on when you could eat meat. So falafel apparently arose effectively as a contrived meat substitute, not because people back then were vegetarian, but that on certain days of the week, you were forbidden from eating meat. And so what we're actually seeing is actually a revival of this, I think, of uh, exploring how you can actually, in a sense, you know, because you can cheat perception quite easily in many ways. You know, what we like about things. I'm, I'm always intrigued by the idea in chocolate bars that if you make the beginning bit sweet and the end sweet, people aren't that bothered by the amount of sugar that's in the middle because they don't really notice. And so I, I completely agree. I think that area for exploration is incredibly rich. Yeah, and sometimes you add one ingredient or one flavor that's very common in one, one culture and you can really transform the dish of, a, of, of another culture, right? So I think you cracked that one, right? That's, that's what we do. We do good food, very, I mean, Heinz is uh, synonymous of taste, but based on simple things, right? Uh, that's probably the way to describe it. No, I think that's wonderful. So you can just take it, you can take something, za'atar was, you know, those kind of things, which are were absolutely ubiquitous in one culture. And then the capacity for fusing it with something else is absolutely fascinating. Well, I mean, I have to say thank you very much indeed. That has been absolutely enchanting and uh, brilliant. And again, I am so, so pleased to see marketing and innovation rightly being considered as two sides of the same coin, not separate silos or separate entities. So what a delight that is. That's all for this episode of On Brand. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. For more information on powering your business growth, just visit their website at alfinsight.com. That's A-L-F insight.com. 
The series is produced and as ever expertly edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. It also helps our algorithms, apparently. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then do give us a like. All I can say is here's to next time and thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 